Well, how do we change the world? It's a big question, right? But if someone were to ask you, how do we change the world, what would you say? All of us could probably come up with at least a list, right? Off the top of our heads even. Who would say, end world hunger. That, that would change the world if we ended world hunger. Some of you might say, well, if we had a cure for cancer. It seems like every day you hear someone having cancer. If we could end that, that would change the world. As a Christian, if you're a Christian and here, we might say we would take the gospel to the unreached people groups, to every nation, and that would change the world. And what you need to know is that all those things are valid. All those things are needed. But as we look at Philippians 2 this morning, Paul's going to give us a description of a life of lives that changed the world and it may not include anything that's on your list or my list. And so we're going to look at that together this morning. Philippians 2, grab a Bible. If you don't have one, you can grab one on the floor right in front of you. We want you to turn to, your, uh, turn to this passage in your Bible. Use your Bible. Philippians chapter 2. As you get there, I'm going to pray for us and prepare our hearts. Father in, heart, in heaven, I pray for this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes by your spirit, through your word, to see Jesus. That is, even as we look at this text, that we would see Jesus, who he is, what he has done on our behalf, that he lived the life that we could never live, that he died the death that we deserve, that he rose again in victory. We would see that Jesus exalted this morning, and that would change our lives, and that would change our world. Father, help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's get right into it. Look at the text with me. Philippians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 14. It says this. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, Life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run and labor, run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So this passage starts off with this simple yet difficult command do all things. All things in the Greek means all things. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. The idea of disputing, complaining in the original language. And it goes on to connect this command. Do this. Look at the text. Do this, verse 14, so that you may be this, verse 15. Look at what it says. That you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, that you would shine as lights in the world. Notice the contrast here. You have a crooked and twisted generation. That's the darkness of our world, the brokenness of our world. It's crooked. It's twisted. That's the darkness. And then you have the light, children of God who are blameless, meaning above reproach, innocent. This is the light in the darkness. This is a radical contrast. And what does that go back to? It goes back to that command in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Did you catch that? This light in the darkness, 
This radical contrast goes back to this command. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, disputing, complaining. And so we get to shine as lights in the world. We get to shine as lights in the darkness. And we say, how do we do that? Paul, how do we do that? Tell us how we do that. And Paul says, do everything without complaining. It's almost anticlimactic, right? Like you would think, go serve the poor. Sell everything you have and move to another country and share the gospel. And while those things are valid, that's not what we see Paul emphasize here. He says, do everything without complaining. This word grumbling in the original language is this word ganguzmas. Kind of fun to say, ganguzmas. It's an onomatopoeia. Take you back to your grammar school days. Meaning the sound reflects the meaning. And if you think about it, it, it makes sense, right? If, if you were to walk around and you were in a bad mood and you were to say, ganguzmas, 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 somebody might walk up to you and be like, are you okay? What happened? <laughs> because you seem like you're in a bad mood, just ganguzmas. This idea of grumbling, this idea of complaining. And Paul says, you want to shine as lights in the world? Do everything without that. It seems anticlimactic until we connect it to the real world. And we know, and you know, how hard that is. Like, really, all things without grumbling, questioning, disputing, complaining? Really? How do we do that? I read an article in the Huffington Post that said that 30 to 40% of all conversations are complaining about something. 30 to 40% of everything we say Involves complaining. The New York Times, 95% of consumers who are dissatisfied with a product won't actually go back to the company to give feedback. But instead, what do they do? Complain to 10 to 15 of their friends. This is our culture. It's everywhere. It's rampant. It's hardwired into us to complain. You, you see this in school. Some of you are still in school. Some of you are not. You remember this when you were in school and you'd be in a class. And somebody would say, man, I hate this class. And you would say, I know. I hate it too. And maybe you liked the class, but you didn't know what else to say. So you complained. They would say, man, I'm going to fail this class. And you would say, I know, right? And you were getting straight A's. But you said it anyway because we have a culture of complaining. I remember uh, this movie, The Inconvenient Truth. You remember this movie? Did you see this movie? Okay, so I'm a pastor, and so I sacrifice myself to keep up with current events because I feel like I should know what's going on in the world. So I remember when this movie came out, there was a lot of hubbub around this movie, The Inconvenient Truth. And so at some point, I felt like I should watch this movie. And so I did. I watched this movie, and it was the biggest inconvenience of my life. The whole movie was complaining, complaining about our environment, complaining about our pollution, complaining about everything in the world. And I kept waiting for a solution, but it never came. I kept watching the inconvenient truth, and I waited and waited and waited, and then the movie just ended. All it did was complain the whole movie, and it never brought a solution to fix the problem. I got through watching that with my wife, and I said, well, that's depressing. So I think we watched Dora or something just to be more positive before we went to sleep that night. 
We have a culture of complaining. You do this. I do this. Our culture complains. 30 to 40% of our conversation is complaining. Try tomorrow to not complain. You won't even know what to say. Be like, well, I guess my shirt is, it feels good, actually. It's not uncomfortable, actually. It's not. It's great. I love everything. You won't know what to say. You'll, you'll just stumble over your words because we love to complain. It's hardwired into us. Paul is saying, don't do this. It's pointless. It's harmful. And it's not just positive, encouraging K-love. It's not what Paul is calling us to, right? There's a difference. It's not just positive, encouraging, think better thoughts. Like when you think about complaining, think about something else. Think about Dora. That's not what Paul is calling us to. This isn't self-help or positive thinking. Look at verse 15. Paul says that you are children of God. That when you reflect, you, are, you image God when you live like this. Because you're unique. Because you stand out. That you're a light in the darkness. And some of you may say, well, listen, everybody complains. Everybody does that. That's the point. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be unique. When everybody complains about the weather, about politics, about money, about sickness, you don't. Why? Because it's a, a positive way to see life? No. Because you are a child of the Most High God. Because even in the midst of difficult circumstances, you know a God who loves you, who has concern for you, who sent his son to die for you. So you have a different outlook on life. In 1977, there was a, a blackout in New York, and it was a pretty significant blackout, and it totally threw off everything. And there was a, a priest at a local church that was quoted as saying, we, listen, the priest said this, we are without God after this blackout. Some of you might think, well, that's extreme. But imagine with me for a second total darkness. Now, we don't have total darkness because that would be a safety hazard. Some of you are scared right now. You're like, what's, what's going to happen? Scary movies sometimes are built around this idea of darkness, right? Like, what was the movie about? I don't know. It was dark. And then it was, it was dark. Imagine total darkness, that feeling of losing hope. And then imagine one light. Imagine how beautiful, how attractive, how compelling that one light would be. And not just attractive and compelling, but how necessary it is, right? Like right now, you can't see next to you. Like you need a light for safety, for direction, for warning. And that's just one light. Imagine if we had a group of lights. A group of lights that shined in the darkness, that gave hope to the culture around us. And that could change a culture. That could change a city. That could change a world. And that's what Paul is calling us to, to be lights in darkness, like that. Can you see that? This is what you have been called to as a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not self-help. It's not positive thinking. It's a radically different way of seeing all of life because of what Jesus has accomplished for 
you. Do you see it? So it may seem anticlimactic. It may seem, Paul, are you sure? Shouldn't there be more? This is a radical change in the way we see life and the way we live live life. Paul starts out with saying, do everything without grumbling, complaining. Jesus says, you are lights in the world. This is what we're called to. And then Paul says in verse 16, look at the verse, that you hold fast to the word of life. The scriptures. Other translations will say that you hold forth the word of life. That you put it forward, literally. That you hold out what the Bible says. That when you live like this, that you're a unique people and that you show the Bible is true. That the Bible isn't just commands or platitudes, but that it's true, that it's changed your life. You don't just believe it, you do it. You hold fast to it, you hold it forth. And other people come around you and and they say, man, maybe the Bible is true. Maybe this God is real. Because these people live like this, they shine as lights. What does this look like? Paul begins to give, her, give us a picture of this. Verse 17, he says he's being poured out as a drink offering. A drink offering was the last offering of the day. He uses it again in 2 Timothy to refer to his death. At the end of the day, they would pour out the drink offering as the last offering of the day. What Paul is saying is that even if I give my whole life in service to you, the Philippians, to help you love Jesus, to help you know Jesus, to help you live on mission with Jesus, even if I give my whole life for that, even until my very last day, that that's worth it. Because Jesus has loved me, because Jesus has done this for me, and so I want to help you. This is what this looks like, to shine as lights in the darkness. Now, Paul is in prison. We've talked about this, right? Paul is in prison writing this letter, yet he doesn't have a, a chance to complain. Instead, he encourages others and calls them not to complain. If anybody could complain, it would be Paul, right? And I think a stumbling block for a lot of us when we read Paul is we say, well, that's Paul. We've seen him say other things, and we will see. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Come on, Paul. I mean, that's a little extreme. A A lot of times we look at Paul saying things, and we think, well, that's just Paul. I can't do that. But He gives us two more examples. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul says he has no one like Timothy. What makes Timothy unique? Look at the passage. Verse 20. He has a unique, genuine concern for others. You see, grumbling is about self. Like when we complain, what does it revolve around? It revolves around self. It revolves around us. And what Paul is saying is that Timothy looked beyond himself, that he has a genuine concern for others. I remember when I was in college, there was an elderly man that uh, was an elder in our church as well and was just a really godly guy. And he just made himself available to me. Um, 
we would study a book together, we would study the Bible together, and he would just spend time walking me through what it meant to follow Jesus and to live for him. And when my wife, my wife and I started dating, we would go over to his house, and he would always have something for us. Like, we could never just go to his house and sit down. He would always have something for us, even if it was hot tea. And a lot of times he would have pie. And he was an older gentleman in his 70s, and he would have pie, and he wouldn't just go to Safeway and get a pie. He wouldn't just make a pie. He would find the best pie in the region, call it in, and bring it home for like an hour meeting with us. And we would walk in, and we would say, hey, Gail, How's it going? And he would say, welcome. Won't you have some pie? And typically we had just ate or we were just trying to be nice. And we're just like, that's so kind of you, Gail. But we don't need to eat your pie. I mean, I don't need to eat your pie. I'm doing okay. But he would say again, Tim, won't you have some pie? Please have a slice of pie. And sure enough, we would eat the pie. And it was amazing. He was so concerned about us, and not just with pie. <laughs> he, one day he came to me and was like, Tim, there's these books that have had a great influence on my life, and I want you to read these books also. And so he literally handed me a box of books with all of these books that have been influential in his life, in his Christian life. And he wanted to be influential in my life. One of those books was a study Bible. At the time, I didn't even know those existed. I didn't have one. I didn't know what that was. And so I began to read these books and devour these books and read my Bible with the assistance of the study notes. And I was just like, this is amazing. That point, that man in my life was seminal in transforming my heart to change my life, but also to to go to seminary, to want to do vocational ministry, to do what I'm doing today. And it all started with a genuine concern for me. It started with pie. It started with caring about my needs over others. It started with thinking, man, he could probably use some books. I'm going to buy him a box full. I'm going to buy him a really good study Bible because he was concerned for me. That concern, do you see this? That concern is still living through me today. That concern outreaches him to you. Like you get to experience the concern of Gail Wyatt in East Texas today because of how he invested in my life, about how he chose to see beyond himself and consider others and have a genuine concern. Some of you may say, well, I tried to live like this. I just don't seem to have that within me. Well, how does Timothy have this? Look at the verse, verse 21. How does he have this genuine Concern. It says, for they all seek their own interests. Listen to this. Not those of Jesus Christ. He compares a genuine concern for others with the interest of Jesus. You see that? Timothy has a genuine concern for others because he doesn't just look at his interest. He looks at not just the interest of others, right? You see that? He looks at the interest of Jesus. And as he begins to love Jesus, fix his eyes on Jesus, look to Jesus, he begins to care about what Jesus cares about. How do you have a genuine concern for others, a unique concern for others? You fix your eyes on Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5, 15 says it this way, that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus who died and was raised. That as a Christian, because you know Jesus who gave himself for you, who is concerned about you, that radically transforms your life. And as you begin to grow in your love for Jesus, you begin to grow in your love for others. Because when Jesus has your affection, he has the work of your hands. You see that? When Jesus has your affection, he has the work of your hands. It doesn't stop with you. It doesn't terminate on you. Then when you begin to love Jesus, you begin to love others. Because Jesus does that. That's how Timothy has this. That's how you and I have this. We don't just give three steps for caring about other people. All right? We don't just talk about, well, if you care about other people, you're actually more healthy, studies show. Like if you give to more people, you actually become wealthy. Like there's other tactics, right? If you, if you care about other people, you're less likely to be depressed. You're more productive at work. People want to hang out with you. Those are all legitimate reasons. But you don't just need tactics. You need a change of heart. You don't need a change in tactics. You need a change of heart. Your heart needs to go from yourself to Jesus. And as it does that, you begin to care for what Jesus cares about. Do you see that? This is the model in Timothy that we have to see how we have this unique concern for others. There was a guy uh, in Austin that my wife and I spent some time with. His name was Michael. And he was from France and uh, didn't know a lot of people, so we would hang out with him quite a bit. He was in our apartment complex, and we would spend time with this guy. And one of the first times I hung out with Michael, we were talking, and we get into a conversation about Jesus pretty quickly because I'm a pastor, and so that's what happens. Um, like, what do you do? I'm like, well, I lead people to follow Jesus um, for a living. And he's like, oh, okay. And here's what he said in one of our first conversations. He says, well, I think God is dead. I'm like, okay, Michael. Um, <laughs> very blunt of you. I think God is, is dead. And you know what? I can't imagine why you would spend your life pursuing him. One of our first conversations. And by God's grace, after that conversation, I recovered. And we began to hang out with this guy even more. And maybe like seven months in, he came to our church. I don't know why. I think there was a good-looking girl that he wanted to see. He comes to church. He sees us interact with some of our friends from church that are Christians as well. And we keep hanging out with the guy. And about a year later, he's over at our apartment, and we're making tacos. It's where all life change happens. <laughs> we're making tacos, and literally, I can remember this. I was making my taco, putting the different things in my shell, because that's how you make a taco. <laughs> and as I was doing that, Michael out of nowhere says this. He says, hey, Tim, tell me again how you met Jesus. <laughs> I was just like, I almost spilled my taco. I was like, what? Um, and I did. I just, I just started to tell him and recount to him how I met Jesus. And my wife did the same. And our circumstances were different. And we talked about the different circumstances of how we met Jesus, but ultimately that Jesus had transformed our lives. And we couldn't deny it. And we couldn't deny him. And we ended up talking to Michael about Jesus, about the Bible, about the validity of Scripture, about everything that night. Like we stayed up 
almost all night talking about this. A year later after saying, I don't believe in God. In fact, I think he's dead. Why would you pursue him? And then a year later, he says to me, can you tell me about how you met Jesus? Like, how do you even know how to say that? That doesn't make sense. And so I asked him. I'm like, Michael, we can talk about Jesus in a second. What happened? Because a year ago, you told me that you thought God was dead. And you kind of made fun of me for following him, for pursuing him. What happened? And he said this. He said, I've seen the way you treat your wife. I've seen the way the people at your church care for one another. And I've never seen that before. And he said, I'm not sure about God even now, but I think I need to look into it a little bit more. You see that? What if, what if this happened? Like, what if the people in your life, at your work, in your neighborhood, in your family, your friends, what if they were skeptical of what you believed, but they were hopeful of the God that you believed in? Like, what if they were skeptical of what you believed, but they were hopeful of the God that you believed in because how they saw you treat one another? Like, what if over time you began to live this way in your life? You were a light in the darkness at your job. You didn't complain when everyone else complained. You had a different outlook on life. You treated one another that way. What if you did that? And people that were skeptical about what you believed, that still weren't convinced, were envious of that because they saw how you interacted with one another. This is what Paul is getting at, a genuine, unique concern for other people. Like, how much more would people in your life want to know about Jesus because of the way we treat one another? Because of the concern we have for one another. Like, how much would people want to come into this church if they were welcome into this place, if people had a genuine concern for them as they walked in this place? How would that change the way people see Jesus and their openness to him? There's an influential pastor that I follow, and he talks about how before you receive this message, the preaching of God's word, you receive so many other messages when you attend a church. Like when you get into the parking lot, you receive a message. Like, are there people there to greet you, to show you where to park? Are there people at the front doors who say hello to you and not a fake hello, like, hey, glad you're here. Hey, glad you're here. Not that. But like a genuine concern, like, we really are glad that you are here. That he talks about that we receive so many messages before we experience this message from stage. And that many times for a church, People decide whether they're going to come back or not based on those messages, not this message. Did you see that? And you know this to be true. Some of you have gone to churches that were just kind of cold and distant. You walked in, nobody said anything to you. You came in, sat by yourself. And maybe the worship was awesome. Like maybe the preaching was awesome. But you walked away and you didn't come back to that church because you said, I don't think people have a concern for me. I don't think they care about me as a person. And the opposite is true, right? Like maybe you've been a part of a church, hopefully it's this one, where you came in and you felt like people actually cared about you. You're just like, I don't know what it is. When I show up to church, when I go to my community group, people ask me how my day was. It's so weird. They ask me how I'm doing. They ask me about my family, and it's not that exciting. 
But they seem to think it is. You have those stories. That's why you connect with the church you connect with. That's why you hang out with the people you hang out with. Because when you have a genuine concern for others, it's compelling. It's attractive. It's beautiful. Like a light in a darkness. This is what Timothy had. This is what Paul is calling you and I to have is this genuine concern for others that is unique. But that's just one example in Timothy. He goes on to give us another example in Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says this, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Verse 27, indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul gave them a model in Timothy and now in Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is someone they know. They sent him to Paul. And notice what he says about Epaphroditus, verse 30. He completed what was lacking in their service. The Philippian service to Paul. What was lacking? What was lacking in their service to Paul? Their presence, right? They weren't with Paul physically. So they sent Epaphroditus. And I don't know if, if you can put yourself back in this time frame, but they didn't have a car, right? They didn't have a plane. Like he most likely walked, maybe rode a donkey, that he went a long way, that he risked his life. We see in this passage that he was ill even to the point of almost dying just to be with Paul, just to give him supplies, just to minister to him in a time of need, that they sent him Epaphroditus. And Paul recounts all of the ways this presence impacted him and will impact them upon his return because presence is unique. It's powerful. I remember when we first planted a church in Austin. I was the associate pastor, and we started it kind of from the ground up like this. And because I was the associate pastor, I wasn't able to take a salary, and so I had to raise support. And I didn't just raise support, I had to start a business on the side just to provide for my family. We had just had our first child, it was 2009. First child, new city, new church, new business, raising support, and it was the most chaotic year of our marriage. Like even now, as we chronicle our lives and think about our lives, we've been married almost nine years, and we'll talk about that year. 2009, that was crazy. New baby, first child, new church, raising support, starting a business, planting a church. It was a crazy year. And one morning, uh, I had kind of driven myself into the ground. I was exhausted. I was tired. I really wasn't taking care of myself. And one morning, I remember I woke up at 5 a.m. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I could feel my heart beating like every beat. And it was really heavy and slow and I remember I looked around and I saw spots. That was all I could see. And I knew something was wrong. And so I, I wake up, Jay, and I'm like, something's wrong. I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure what's happening to me right now. But I was losing consciousness. 
And so she calls 911. She calls an ambulance, and they come. And I ended up spending the night in a hospital. I remember saying to my wife, I'm just like, baby, if I die, call my parents. They will take care of you. They will send money. It's going to be okay. And I was fine. <laughs> I obviously didn't die. Um, I was severely dehydrated. I had structured my life in an unsustainable, impossible way. And I had driven myself into the ground. And I remember after that happened, I was fine. I just needed to restructure my life, drink some water. It was a good idea. Um, so I began to do that, but it, it put me out for like a week, and I was just at, at home a lot, and I couldn't really do much and didn't really do much with the family and dinners and all those things were kind of crazy. And so a friend of mine, who's still a friend today, who was in my wedding, um, he's not the most encouraging guy. And if he were here, he would tell you that. Like, that's not one of his spiritual gifts, encouragement. In fact, he's a little bit socially awkward. He would tell you that too. He's a little bit proud of it. It's kind of awkward that he's awkward about being awkward. Um, but he just doesn't communicate that well. But I love him. And he's still a friend today. And so even when we talk on the phone today, I'm just like, oh, Nathan. Oh, Nathan. But this guy, this friend, would that week I was at home and couldn't really do much after being in the hospital, he would just come over and bring us food. He would bring us lunch. He would bring us dinner. He would bring us sloppy Tex-Mex. It was amazing. And he wouldn't really ask how I was doing. In fact, he kind of made fun of me, like for passing out and just like, just like, are you really, a man? you think you're going to be okay right now? Should we call an ambulance right now? Like, you just dozed off. Should we? Like, he would just make fun of me and we would talk about sports and we would eat sloppy Tex-Mex and it was amazing. And he didn't really encourage me that much. He didn't ask me about my life and, and really how he could help further, but he was there. Like he was physically there when I needed somebody, when my family needed somebody. Just simply coming over, bringing us food, and sitting there. It made a huge impact. It helped me get back on track. It was an encouragement to my wife because we had food. And he was just there. Unique presence. Like the power of presence in your life. You've seen this. Like there's other people in your life. Think about the most influential people in your life. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your mom and dad, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's a friend. And when you went through that sickness and they came and sat with you. When you lost your job, that they just came over and just said, hey man, let's, let's get you out of this house. Let's go get something to eat, let's go grab a cup of coffee, let's just hang out. That person in your life when... You lost someone, and they just said, man, we don't have to talk about that until you're ready, but I just want to come and spend time with you. Let's go, let's go do something. Let's go play golf. Let's go play tennis. Let's go get you out of the house and do something together that they were just with you. Think about those people in your life. Those are the most influential people because there's a power in presence. There's a uniqueness in presence, and there, and there was for Paul. Like Epaphroditus, he risked his life to come to Paul. It'd be like if, if I was in prison somewhere and you guys were like, I don't know what we should do. Like maybe we should send somebody. Like maybe he could use some supplies. Maybe he needs some encouragement. And you were to send somebody and they were just to raise their hand and say, listen, I may die. It's in a really hard place. But I'm going to go anyway. 
because I want to be there for him. This is what Epaphroditus did for Paul. And Paul is beginning to send him back to the Philippians because he knows his presence isn't only powerful for him, it's going to be powerful for the Philippians. Because it radically changes us when people spend time with us. It's a tangible expression of God's love. Do you see that? This is what Paul is calling us to. Some of you, you can think about people in your life like this. Like right now, people are coming to your mind like this. I know when I read this passage, the first person I thought of was this girl named Esther. Esther is a 22-year-old girl. Uh, She's my wife's cousin, and she lived in Austin. And I remember we got a text one day, and it was that Esther had uh, brain cancer. And she was 22 years old. She was a a pre-med student at the University of Texas. Just really bright girl, really smart girl. I remember when she had surgery, we showed up at the hospital, and she was sitting on her bed in a University of Texas hoodie, and she was just as happy as can be. And she just knew. She's like, I'm going to beat this cancer. She was a believer. She knew Jesus. She knew that he had a purpose behind this from the very beginning as she's about to go into surgery. And that didn't change after she got out of surgery. She went through all the, the chemo and the treatment, and they thought it was gone. Like she enrolled in school again. She went back to school and started living her life as normal. And the cancer came back, and it came back more aggressive. And she did a video right before she died, and uh, I went back and watched it just recently for this, and it was amazing because she didn't complain. Like, she didn't even cry. A 22-year-old girl with brain cancer, she didn't complain. And, and I wanted to get the quotes right, so I just I wrote them down. She said this. She said, I'm just really thankful and grateful for the time God has given me. They're giving me about two months to live, but I want to encourage everyone that life is full of difficulties. They could be physical, emotional, spiritual. But whatever you may be going through, it's only temporary. It's all in God's hands. You see, not only did she not complain, but she took the time to encourage everybody else watching this video. It was mind-blowing. It was profound. And it had a huge impact. Like, I remember her funeral, it was packed. They had the balcony filled. They had standing, people standing in the back because there wasn't a place to sit because of the impact she made. Because she went on to pass away and she died. But that wasn't the end of her influence. In fact, they started a Facebook group with about 2,000 members. She wasn't famous. She wasn't a celebrity. They started a Facebook group and got 2,000 members members. People still today will come up to my wife, will come up to her parents, will come up to others and say, you don't know me, but you need to know that Esther made a profound impact on my life. And they'll go on to recount their situation and their life and how Esther's influence, the way she perceived life, the way she lived life, the way she did so in an immense difficulty, in an immense sickness, that all the way to the end, that she had a joy beyond herself. And people will come up, even today, and say, you don't know me. But you need to know that Esther had a profound impact on my life. That it radically transformed my life because I was going through this, because I had this in my past, and her influence is the reason I know Jesus today. She had a profound impact because she knew 
her creator. Like she really knew Jesus. You see that? You know people like that? Maybe you're thinking about people like that right now. That people who really know Jesus, they're unique. They're unique people. They're lights in a darkness. Like they have a unique concern for others when they should have a concern for themselves. But they still show a genuine concern for others. This was Esther. You know people like this in your life. Maybe you're one of those people and we're thankful for you. Because those people really know Jesus. Those people really know their creator. They know that they're meant for more than themselves. This is what Paul is getting at in this passage. A joy beyond self. We asked at the beginning, how do you change the world? Sometimes we only think of the radical thing. Like, well, maybe I need to sell everything I have and move to Africa. And maybe you do. Well, maybe I need to quit my job and just become a missionary. Maybe I need to plant a church. Maybe I need to work at a hospital, be a nurse, be a doctor. And maybe you do, and all those things are valid. But what I want you to see is that Paul is saying in this passage, don't discount the small things. Like, don't discount the way you treat one another, the way you speak about one another, the way you speak about life. What Paul is saying is, don't just think about yourself, think about other people. What Paul is saying, don't just think about them, but actually go be with them, spend time with them. That this will radically transform you, that it will radically transform your neighborhood, it could radically transform a culture, and it could change a world. Imagine if we live like this. Imagine if you live like this in your relationships with your boyfriend or girlfriend, with your spouse, with your friends, with your family. Imagine if a group of people lived like this. Imagine if a church lived like this. A unique people with a unique concern, with a unique presence. That could change a culture, that could change a city, that could change a world. Let's pray for that right now. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these men and women. I pray that whatever they walk in here with this morning, that they would take a moment to pause and consider, are they unique? Because of what Jesus has done in their lives, are they living unique lives? Where they have a genuine concern for others, where they spend time with other people, where they experience a joy beyond themselves. God, I pray for these men and women, I pray for myself, that we would take a moment, that we would pause and see, do we have that? Are we living like that? And if not, why not? Why not? What's keeping us from that? Maybe it's our busy schedule. Maybe it's a doubt that we have in you, that you're in control and that you know what's best for us. And that maybe if we live like this, we'll be taken advantage of. God, I don't know what it is. Maybe it seems unrealistic. Maybe it seems like, well, this is what it says in the Bible. But I don't know if that's realistic today. Whatever those objections are, God, I pray that you would squash those by the power of your spirit now. And we would pause for a moment and consider what would it would actually be like to live like this. And God, that you would get a hold of our hearts and we wouldn't just try to muster this up ourselves, but you would get a hold of our affections and you would affect the work of our hands. That we as a church, Phoenix Bible Church, would begin to impact our city, our culture, our world this way for your glory and for our joy. Father, we need your help for that and so we ask for it now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.